Hello, and welcome everybody. And a huge, huge thank you to Arts Council England, because without them we wouldn't be able to do this, so thank you to them for supporting the whole festival. It gives me great pleasure to introduce Modern Poetry in Translation and Claire Pollard, who's the current editor, and um, she will be introducing things um, from here on in. I just wanted to say, well, the vitality and the importance of Modern Poetry in Translation. I just wanted to say a, a couple of quotes. One's from John Berger, who's author of Ways of Being, which is a fantastic book, and he said, anyone who wants to change the world and see it changed should join. And immediately after reading that, I immediately subscribed to Modern Poetry in Translation. So if you haven't already, I recommend you do. And the other quote is from Ted Hughes, who was one of the founders in 1965. And he said, one can easily understand the suddenness of the need to communicate, to exchange dreams and revelations and brainwaves, to find a shared humanity at the level of the heart. That poetry in translation becomes so important almost political. So if you'd like to give a big welcome to Claire Pollard. Um, hello everyone, welcome and um, welcome to the launch of the House of Thirst, uh, which is our LGBTQ uh, plus focus issue. Um, at Lebri on this glorious Pride weekend. And thank you very much to uh, Chloe and Bethany and all, everyone else at Lebri who's helped us uh, for welcoming us and, and to the Arts Council also for their support. Um, I'm very proud to be the new editor, taking over from uh, the wonderful Sasha Dugdale. And one of the things I love about this magazine is that it, in its kind of bones, in its mission statement, it talks about giving voice to the silenced, the exiled and the excluded. In 72 countries around the world, LGBTQ people are criminalised and it can take great courage to write, to publish, to translate, to even distribute their poetry. Um, and we're very glad and, and privileged at MPT to be in a position uh, to be able to celebrate and amplify uh, some of those brilliant queer voices from around the world tonight. Um, so we're going to begin with one of uh, the Ledbury emerging uh, critics, which is an absolutely fabulous scheme. We're all over it. We're, we're employing as many of the critics as we can, as often as we can. And um, Jennifer Lee Zai has a brilliant review in this issue of Contemporary Women Poets from Japan. And she's very kindly agreed to um, introduce and read a few of her highlights from the magazine, which hopefully give you an idea of, of some of the things we have in here. After that, we're going to hear from Richard Scott, who has done a blistering uh, brand-new translation for us uh, for the issue of the poet Jayan Cherian, who's an Indian-born filmmaker whose work has been banned in his homeland and who's re received death threats for it. Um, it's a really marvellous poem. And Richard's also going to treat us to some of his uh, gorgeous Verlaine translations, I believe, from his recent book Soho, which is on sale at the back. And finally, we'll be welcoming Mary Jean Chan on stage to read a little of her a brilliant essay from the new issue about the relationship between queerness and translation. And then we're going to have a, a little time for discussion with um, Mary Jean and Richard and myself, and there'll be a chance to ask questions if anyone has any. So I hope that sounds like a, a marvellous evening. I'm, I'm excited. Um, and hopefully you will buy a copy, subscribe. There's postcards at the back with a 25% discount code, if you want to take one of those. And also buy the the marvellous books of our, our readers tonight. Um, so I'm going to welcome Richard Scott now, I'm just to read his biography. 
no, not Richard Scott, Jennifer, sorry, just to read her biography. Um, she's a British-Chinese poet based in Liverpool, a fellow of the Complete Works, and a Lebri Emerging Poetry Critic. And her poems have been published in 10, Poets of the New Generation, which I think is on sale at the books shop too and is absolutely worth buying. It's marvellous. And the Rialto and Oxford Poetry. A very warm welcome to Jennifer. Thank you for that introduction, Claire. Um, it's really wonderful to be here today. Um, so I'm just going to read a selection um, of poets from this brilliant issue. Um, so my first choice of poet is um, a Japanese poet um, who's called Tsukamoto Kunio. Um, he's translated by Andrew Huiyan and Nihao Chehako. And I'll just give you a little bit um, of background to this poet. So six years after the Second World War, Tsukamoto Kunio published his debut tanker collection, Suso Monogatori, Sea Burial Tales, from which many of these tanker are taken. His experimental approach was rejected by the tanker establishment. It was, however, enthusiastically received by the famous novelist Mishima Yukio, who wrote to him that he had revived an important part of Japanese aesthetics. Since then, his oeuvre has been praised by leading poets such as Tamura, Ryuchi, and Uka Makoto, and described as the peak of post-war tanker. Four tanker. Before eyes blinded by the snow, the single stem of a black poppy, what we did not realise, the, the Gestapo within us. The wheat famine of one particular summer, an alto singing about the famine's disconsolation in a, rom in a romanza. Trampling on lilacs, one shoe after another, tomorrow not, going and coming back through streets burned by the flames of war. In the Saint Sebastian painting, the vein thirst for water. On the water surface, a single camellia drifts away. The next poet that I'm going to read from is um, a Korean poet called Lee Hayame translated by So J. Lee. So just a brief background to this poet. Lee Hayame's poetry is characterised by fluidity and wetness, with subjects moving about and soaking in each other through curious means. In the title of her collection, Unexpected Vanilla, the titular vanilla, indeed meant as the antonym of kinky, is unexpected for Lee, who subverts the vanilla norm without denying its pleasures. So the, po the poem that I'm going to read is called Femdom. Femdom. Fish grew in every corner of the room and cultivated 
a sharp light, bodies riddled with needle marks. Those that fled and returned are sticking their heads out again and thirsting for scars. Those laboring genitals, bodies fainting inside my net. Look at the wet scales swimming towards the ripples of expulsion. Look at the broken fingers knocking on the door bolted shut. When I tenderly trample on the trembling gaze of another being to become their master, all my luminous fish cry out with tied feet. That's the gift of fear. My beautiful low lives who pledge allegiance only after opening their veins and checking for a surge. Look at these epitaphs flopping all over the bedroom floor. All day long, I rip and break the half-dead yesterdays with fear led by an even larger fear. Um, and my final selection um, is a Latvian poet who opens this brilliant issue. Um, and it's a Latvian poet called Inga Gale, translated by Ryan Van Winkle and Jada Will. And Ryan Van Winkle writes, I don't speak Latvian, so this poem only exists thanks to a literal bridge translation by Jada Will and long conversations with the poet herself. I liken this process to going through airport security and having your carefully ordered luggage completely unpacked. As anyone who has had this experience can attest, it can leave you feeling vulnerable and a little frustrated. Um, okay, so this poem is called Fog. Fog. Look, that is fog, princess. A true fog. Look, all you have in your hands is a plastic compass and a wet, wrinkled map. See that missed path which would have led you to the uncaptured flag. See the boy you'll no longer be able to look in the eye. See, it's always autumn, dead leaves crackling underfoot. See your friends and family struck dumb by the damp faded pages you brought them. A man on his knees, a 12-year-old girl with her pastel pants down round her ankles. Look, this here is a fog, kids, a sure, solid fog. See all the people gathered around, avoiding your eyes. See, here is the firm earth, and see, you're talking about it already. You stand, you grow, you learn to control your panic. You become a good bridge between towns, a protective tree. You learn to find people's eyes and make friends, 
who have no arms, no legs. They're your kind of people. They understand you, can bear to look you in the eye. And you write this poem again for the th thousandth time, sweetheart, knowing one day it will erase itself. See, this is called fogs, my dears, a literal fog, a metaphorical fog, which is really just words and streams of hot snot and semen and, oh, the addictive solstice of tears. And eventually, I exit the forest and find the quiet church in the clearing. Twenty-one harvests have passed, and I am still wearing the same gym shorts, the elastic cutting into my waist like soft cheese. And those people look at me and say, come on, darling, why so tragic? Can't you write more tactful, cover up, be a little demure. Don't say, don't say. So I say, fuck you, go fuck yourselves. I tell children the truth. The world is no slice of sweet cherry pie. And they say, we preferred your work when you, you drank too much and slept with everyone who gave you a kind look. Come here, dear, and lie beneath us again. And you know, the fog is real, kids. You can taste it. I have nothing except this threadbare, hard-bitten, soft, sinewy tongue and fingers which write these words floating on a screen as if it was a wide, peaceful lake. I am leaving the damp, fog-filled forest. And please, boys and girls, trapped in your family dackers living rooms, stuck in the back seat of your uncle's car, lost in your conjugal beds. Come on, all you lost ones, locked in some sauna, sweaty, drunk and drugged, you boys and you girls who survived. I tell you, it is scary, for sure. But still, it's safe. You can come out. You can find the path can leave the fog, or wait a while if you must, but be gentle with yourselves. And I will try to be here in the clearing. I will try to breathe for you, silent till you are ready to speak, waiting here in the open sun. so much Jennifer I'm really glad you read that poem which I think is magnificent and that was such a moving reading thank you very much um, next we're going to hear from Richard Scott who was born in London in 1981 and his pamphlet uh, Wound uh, came out from Rialto and won the Michael Marks Award in 2016 his poem Crocodile won the 2017 Poetry London competition and his very hotly awaited debut uh, Soho has just come out from Faber and Faber. Um, Richard.
I'll start with a love song to the moon. There you go again, silver plating the bus stop. You make my veins pop blue. As a boy, I could name all your waters, sea of crisis, sea of cold. You did not turn away as I jerked off, explored my down with your darling beam. Oh, satellite, follow me home, and I will open my walls for you. Tonight, I want your lidless eye, your pearly hum. Wash my beard with translucence, transmute my skin to semi-precious metal. Enter my mouth, my anus with light. Um, that poem takes its starting point from um, uh, Bellini aria from his opera Norma, uh, in which uh, the soprano uh, Norma, who's kind of this really badass druid kind of wicker, she kind of has a song to the moon, but hers is Casta Diva, so it's about a chaste moon, but I wanted mine to be a little bit less chaste than hers. Uh, I wanted to kind of queer the moon up a little bit. Um, uh, it's really nice to be here. Thank you so much to Claire and to Modern Poetry Translation and to Ledbury Festival for having me. Um, and uh, I'm so proud to be part of this extraordinary um, issue, the House of Thirst, which uh, is so important in celebrating LGBTQ plus voices around the world um, and giving them a new audience. Um, yeah, when Claire suggested that I work with uh, Jay Anterian, um, I was really incredibly happy about that. Um, and he sent me lots of poems to choose from, and time kind of permitted that we just worked on on one, because it um, turns out if you don't speak um, uh, Malayam, um, it's really hard to translate uh, from the language, so time didn't really allow for, for me to... I wanted to do more than one, but... Um, but in reading through his poems, he'd, he'd amazingly done literal translations uh, by himself. Um, in reading through the poems, I was really struck by one which he termed uh, kind of loosely anthropomorphic love. Uh, but as you'll hear, it's this extraordinary poem which kind of um, homoeroticizes or, or queers the big bang, bang or a kind of creation myth. And I was really struck with um, the bravery of someone who would do that, um, especially as Jayan had to move to New York after receiving death threats in India for his writing and also for his, uh, for his films. Um, but yeah, so we, we spent a lot of time on WhatsApp conversations um, early in the morning and we went through his poem anthropomorphic uh, love word by word and um, it, slowly, it slowly became this, um, I've called it Geography. Geography. Gather up love like a full fishing net, watch it writhe this muscular wetness. Pierce a glory hole into the navy sky. Gorp at Uranus, Saturn's ring. Pinch Everest's nipple, pinch the Andes. Softly rim the equator. His temperate zones of pink, ripening blossoms. Heartwine, lotus, hibiscus. By now you are sweating a lot. 
The brackish Nile divides your shoulder blades, but reach up to ring out light from his constellations. Orion, the great bear, charge your cock with molten luminescence. Oh, you are seismic, an extinction-level event, ready to queer the earth. Unbuckle his asteroid belt, grope for his black hole. By now you are inside the dark room of his cosmos. So get to work, homo, climb the Richter scale. You are becoming tremor, Kali chaos, subterranean magma chamber ready to bust. The very sky has flown away like a backdrop. This is the pre-bang static charge, the boundless multiverse. His naked back, sweat beads glistening like moon rock. It's appropriate to read a poem that ends with sweat beads glistening like moon rocks when we're all sitting here sweating. Um, so, um, in uh, I've been obsessed with Paul Verlaine or Paul Verlaine, however you decide to say it, for a really long time. Um, indeed, I used to work as a musician, and um, singing his uh, poetry, um, I was a, I was a singer. Singing his text was really my kind of first brush with uh, poetry and kind of inhabiting the language. Um, so, if there was ever anyone I was going to try and take on to, to translate it, it, it was kind of him because I've been obsessed with him for years and years. Um, that said, I've been incredibly annoyed by a century of sort of translation scholarship on his work, which has kind of sought to kind of unqueer him, basically, um, and kind of remove um, any sense of the dangerous, um, incredibly uh, forward-thinking uh, queer man that he was. Uh, when he was running around with Arthur Rambeau, the term homosexual hadn't even yet been coined, um, and he was, despite riven with shame for leaving his wife, uh, he was, you know, as open, you know, as to a gay man as, as we could have had in that century. Um, but yeah, a lot of scholarship and translation on him has kind of, uh, they've kind of muddied his pronouns, they've kind of uh, straightened up his lexicon, um, and I, I guess part of my love of Paul Verlaine and wanting to take on his poetry kind of wanted to maybe try and readdress that balance a little bit and try to queer him up again a little bit, which hopefully I don't think he would have minded. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'd, I'll give you a little insight into my process. I mean, I should say that um, they're not exactly translations, because again, it turns out translation's really hard. Hats off to people here who translate all the time, Claire included. Um, but it, it turns out if you don't speak French, it, it's really hard to translate French. So I, I had a go at translating them, and uh, they were very hard. So then I tried to do some versions. I thought, oh, versions are easy. That's great. Nope, they're not easy. Um, and so basically I did um, uh, some poems which kind of um, are basically talking to Paul Verlaine and are talking to his language. Um, some of them, um, like the first one I'm going to read, uh, Claire de Lune or Blue Screen, uh, follows closely his kind of um, argument and his poetic logic, whereas some of them... Um, Sertraline 50 milligrams or Il Pleu de Mon Coeur, which I'll read in a minute, um, that kind of really takes a line or a phrase and kind of talks back to it in a kind of modern idiom. So the poems kind of phase in and out of versions or speaking back to. Um, yeah, and uh, I guess 
the way I went about it. Um, I used a lot of um, Google Translate. That's a great piece of software, as I'm sure you all know. Um, but also, um, uh, well, I, I, finding modern equivalents for things. Uh, he writes a lot about uh, the soul and various things like that, which I think are really hard to write about um, with integrity if you're not uh, religious, and I'm not religious. So... Um, in trying to take on his poem Claire de Lune, which is one of his most famous, that begins with the, uh, the phrase Votre Amé, or Your Soul, and he goes on to describe it as a landscape full of burger maskers and dancers. Um, I wanted to try and find an equivalent for soul, so I was chatting to my uh, partner about this, Dan, and I was saying, okay, what can I use? I can't use the word soul. And he was like, okay, so so what is it? And I was like, well, it's like a non-corporeal representation of your personality. And he was like, oh, like a grinder profile. And I was like, yes, exactly. So they're kind of irreverent. So, uh, you know, um, the soul becomes a grinder profile. Um, I know, a ballroom where he chooses between two suitors becomes Tinder. Um, you know, uh, the landscape of, you know, rural France and Lyric Skis becomes Hampstead Heath when he's cruising. But um, I guess they're trying to put back the gay man in the poems that um, a hundred years of scholarship has kind of slowly eradicated. Blue screen. Your grinder profile is an emoticon paradise where camels and kittens go dancing and flashing. But I can tell they are sad beneath their primary colors. Your preferences brag in aerial bold, single, passive, no strings fun. But they don't like themselves, so melt back into the blue screen, into the silent blue screen, blank and sad, that makes the emoticons dream within their programming and code run like teardrops, C, C++, sob beneath your touch screen. Green. Here's a plastic basket of polyester tulips, plus a heart-shaped card that sings, I love you. Don't recycle them, please. Be happy with my pound store presents. I stink. I'm pretty sweaty. I've been walking this whole damp night to get here. Let me curl around your converse cat-like and dream of our cherry days. Maybe I could put my head still burning from the memory of your hubba-bubba kisses onto your broad chest, just till I feel a bit better. Perhaps grab some shut-eye while you doze off. Tinder. Blonde or brown-haired, I swipe the screen. Blue eyes or green, I swipe again, looking for another with a poet's eyes, but a short back and sides. Soft belly, hard abs, lean, I swipe the screen. Heart, desperate or damaged, who cares? So I swipe again. 
there's far too many of us. Man slut or boyfriend material, left, right, yes, no. Does it matter? There's always another, each fitter than the last, each newer. Um, uh, Paul Verlaine was a symbolist, as I'm sure you know, and part of uh, being a symbolist and, and using those kind of symbols and language was kind of immersing yourself in this traditional sense of melancholy. Um, they kind of thought that if you weren't sad, you weren't clever or intelligent and you didn't have a good personality. So they spent an awful lot of time being sort of um, sad um, and, and artificially so a lot of the time. Um, but also, you know, reading, uh, reading some of his letters, um, reading his correspondence with Rambo and also thinking about the time when he was um, in prison and how he spoke about that afterwards because he was imprisoned for two years in Belgium for uh, shooting Rambo in the hand. Um, and um, he spent a lot of time feeling incredibly remorseful and regretful, as you may do if you're spending two years in prison for shooting your lover in the hand. Um, so it's incredibly hard to deal with that kind of melancholic sort of vein in his poetry because um, in one way it's incredibly performative, but in another way um, it's incredibly real and sincere. So the poem sort of veer, um, you know, veer across those two landscapes. Um, but I kind of... Um, not only have to tried to stay true to that, but I've also tried to inject a little bit of my own sort of dealings with mental health. Sertraline. It's raining in my heart. What does that even mean? And why am I so sad all the fucking time? Still, it pours on. The slate roofs are black. The gardens a swamp. Droplets on the pavement. Such white noise is almost calming. So how come my head's a cloud and my heart's a puddle? Middle-class boys like me haven't known tragedy. And yet this dark rain saturating my heart. Today. Memories, what the fuck do you want? Making a fat pigeon beat the air again. The copper sun roll back years. The yellowed woods chatter with decay. We were alone together, him and me. Drunk, sad, our thoughts coming down. He turned his black look my way, said, Is this happiness? His voice metallic. His voice which had been so green, Like my mouth, my body, How I kissed his peachy neck and thighs. Yeah, the first years are so ripe when open-mouthed kisses fill the silence that today is long. And of course, he also wrote about love. Love version of. Tonight I watched you sleep naked on the futon, face down, Sweaty like a small child, 
and knew that everything else was bullshit. It's so hard to stay alive these days or sane, so keep on snoring, Danny, while I guard you like a Rottweiler. Being in love with you is fucking awful, because one day you'll stop breathing. In this grey light you already look dead. But then you smile. Thank fuck. What are you dreaming about, baby? Wake up. Tell me if the word soul still means anything. Um, and I'll just finish with um, a poem of my... Um, well, that's... Well, it's not completely my own. I'm going to finish with a poem called Museum. And I wanted to read it because we were thinking about uh, today, thinking about and celebrating the idea of queer translations or even as Mary Jean talks about so eloquently in her essay, um, the importance of, of, of queering language and transforming it and being true to that. Um, and I, last year I went to a, a residency in, in Athens and they took me to a lot of museums, including the Archaeological Museum. Um, and um, there's just room after room of treasures, um, including all these archaic torsos of Apollo, which are incredibly beautiful um, and massively homoerotic, of course. Um, but all the while I couldn't shake... Um, uh, Rilke's poem, Archaic Torso of Apollo, um, out of my head, and I sort of was repeating it and repeating it as I went from room to room. It's one of my favourite poems. Um, and I was really struck by uh, the final line, as I'm sure everyone is. It's what Mark Doty calls, you know, the best end to a sonnet, you know, in, in, that we've ever had. That final line, you know, I must change my life. The idea that when you come face to face with, you know, um, serious art, um, you can't do anything but... Uh, change. Um, so I'll, I'll end with this poem that kind of, in, s in a small way, talks to Rilke, uh, maybe a little bit. And um, thank you very much for listening and thank you for having me, Claire. <coughs> Museum. The unknown sculptor chose his marble well, birthing you from a glittering seam. These flecks of quartz, pure light, illuminates your chest. It's late afternoon, the halls are empty, and I am tracing a finger across the hacks and pox, these disfigurations of time that tattoo your torso. Oh, my Kouros, my Apollo, you know firsthand, only handless, the vulnerability of queer bodies. How the earth does not value us. Yet you have survived decapitation, the severing of every limb, part castration, to be here, sunstroked hero of the archaeological museum. I want to kiss your sights of amputation, these rough hewn slices, these weathered absences. I want to run my tongue along the lashed small of your back, wet the hilt of your battle-toned ass. So, I do. Bending my head like a boyfriend towards the reliquary of your earth-scarred sternum, I kiss your chiseled flesh 
and find you warm, tasting of sand and lime, and trace my tongue down the line of your groin towards your injured sex. And there, in the hall of marbles, I take you into my mouth and tongue your fractured shaft, the ravaged break of stone, your cut, Absence has not damaged your thrall. If this little of you is beauty, your entirety must have been blinding. For the longest time people told me, I must change my life. But this is my life. This adoration of men. This worship of those whom the world has deemed broken. Just as you gave your body to the earth, so have I given mine to this. Echoing voices, and I am already steps away. Looking back, I can see only the dazzling slope of your cheeks, your sandstone shoulder. A family surrounds you now, giggling, pointing, nodding. Oh, my unearthed God. They do not understand you, the narrative of your body, how you bore the darkness, the years of not being touched, your loneliness, which has been my loneliness. Thank you. Thank you. We're all sweating moon rocks now. Um, <laughs> that was fantastic. Um, okay. Um, finally, then, um, I'm going to invite um, Mary Jean Chan up to the stage, and she is going to read um, a little of her essay, um, and then we're, we're going to sit down and, and have a bit of a chat. So just to introduce her, um, Mary Jean Chan is a poet from Hong Kong, she came second in the National Poetry Competition, which is amazing, and uh, was shortlisted for the Ford Prize for Best Single Poem as well. And her debut collection is forthcoming um, from Faber next year in 2019. Um, Mary G. Um, just want to say thank you to Claire and to MPT. Um, it means a lot. It's actually quite emotional for me to be a part of this issue, um, partly for reasons my essay will explore. Um, I'll just read you excerpts from this piece, um, which is about basically my relationship to my two languages, English and Chinese, and how that dovetails with being um, someone who identifies as queer. I have written elsewhere about growing up in Hong Kong just as the colonial era was drawing to a close, but I'm only beginning to plumb the effects this has had on my psyche. I was seven years old when Hong Kong was officially handed back over to China as a special administrative region. As the last British governor, Chris Patton, waved a ceremonial goodbye aboard the HMY Britannia, the city I was born and raised in assumed its post-colonial identity. As a student at an Anglican school founded by British missionaries from the age of six till 18, I accepted the implicit rules of this historic institution which only began to change incrementally in the years after the British left. The primary school entrance exam, 
a written test administered in English to a group of overwhelmed Chinese six-year-olds, followed by a lengthy interview in English with the junior school headmistress, had impressed upon me the gravity of the situation. I began tutorial lessons at the age of seven with Miss Leite, a retired English teacher who had taught in an international school in Hong Kong for most of her career. What might my relationship to English have to do with my relationship to queerness? Since English was a colonial language, I had always equated a better grasp of English with success. English was rooted in linear time. The longer I worked at it, the better I would get and the more successful I would become. That simplistic mentality ensured that my English did improve, but I was also facing a quandary in terms of the self-discoveries I was making in this increasingly familiar tongue. To this day, Twelfth Night remains my favorite Shakespearean play because it provided me with my first glimpse into the multiplicity of queer desire. The way it was taught during the HKCEEs, our equivalent of the GCSEs, ensured that the play remained firmly within accepted moral boundaries. The gender bending was explained by my teacher as a consequence of the twelfth night of Christmas, during which the normal social order was turned upside down for a day of fun and revelry. The play's ending, where all the couples engage in heterosexual marriage, does lend itself somewhat to this socially conservative reading. However, I could not help but read the text queerly. There was Viola Cesario, who had fallen hopelessly in love with Orsino, whilst wearing her dashing military uniform, and their passionate conversations about the true nature of love made me question who it was I found myself increasingly drawn to. Was it Viola, Cesario, or both? In order to make sense of these emergent feelings, I subsumed my queer desires into linear time and made them an integral part of my ongoing quest to perfect my grasp of English. If reading more Shakespeare made me a better student of English, then I could read about queerness without compromising who I was at the time, a good student of English literature and a dutiful child who wanted to please my Chinese parents. This was a delicate and emotionally difficult balance to maintain, a precarious way of living as a closeted teenager. Eventually, a kind of splitting emerged. For every five books I read in English, I read one book in Chinese. The ratio gradually widened. Soon, I could no longer reconcile the two worlds that were, in my mind, drifting apart. My emergent self, who loved Shakespeare, and my mother, who spoke three Chinese dialects, Cantonese, Mandarin Chinese, and Shanghainese, and who insisted that I declare my allegiance to China's extensive literary canon. As a form of compromise, I diligently read classical Chinese poems set to strict rhyme and meter, often committing multiple poems to memory at a time as I savored their soothing cadences. Even then, poetry in both English and Chinese provided an emotional anchor within the flux of my life that kept me sane. Since coming out to close friends and family in 2012, I've begun to feel increasingly able to gradually reconfigure my relationship to language, how multilingualism offers a profound way of understanding the complex historical, political, and social contexts that have shaped who I am as a person and as a poet. I've begun to read more literature in Chinese and to enjoy Chinese texts translated into English, most recently an anthology titled Jade Ladder, Contemporary Chinese Poetry published by Blood Axe, and Something Crosses My Mind by the Chinese poet Wang Xiaoni, translated by Eleanor Goodman. I am curious about what can or cannot be accurately translated, 
and what new meanings become possible in the translated texts that were not obviously inherent in the source texts. I am also curious about what has become newly possible in the translated text of my life and what meanings I might find in the source text of my past. I am attempting to reject binaries and polarities and I'm beginning to marry the broken selves I'd compartmentalized and kept apart so well during most of my adult life. I am eager to reread and rewrite my life as an ongoing poem, but no longer in linear time. Linear time suffocates. It forces the now into the future and refuses any meaningful engagement with the past. I want instead to inhabit a state of play, a form of playtime, where time dissolves and there is only being, breath, and the myriad of languages that we allow ourselves to inhabit and to speak. Thank you. Thank you, that was absolutely wonderful. And just a, a taste of the longer essay, which I hope you will, will read. Um, I was, I'm very moved by that idea of, of, of kind of translation as perhaps a space where, where we can reject binaries and, and, and marry broken selves, you say, which is a wonderful line. Can, can I ask then, do you, um, do you always write in English then? Or, or, and has that always been the case? Yeah, it is interesting. I think partly as I hinted in my essay, um, the sort of colonial education I received meant that we were all explicitly and implicitly told that English was the better language. So at some point in high school, I was called the English girl, and that was a compliment. Um, and, and, you know, it's interesting that to be in a school where that I read that purely as, oh, I've done well, you know, this is a, a successful bit of my life, um, and this is a school full of Chinese people. Um, so I think I just... But then there was the other bit, which is like, I know English is colonial language, but I also love it. So what do you do with that? You know, I fell in love with the language itself, which I never used at home. My parents, uh, my father speaks English, my mother doesn't. And so English was always the language of school, the language of, you know, sort of institutions that did not involve my family. And then when I began to write poetry, it was most definitely in English. And I think as I was still closeted, that provided me with a very natural barrier, which meant that, um, you know, my mother would just see doodles on the page. And I was happily writing about, yeah, very bad poems about wanting rainbows in my life or something. So, yeah, yeah. I'd like more rainbows. Yeah. Um, there's a really interesting passage in the essay about, um, though, how, um, how the language, how in Cantonese and Mandarin, the pronouns aren't um, explicit in the, in, the, in the same way. Yeah. Um, so that's really interesting. So in some ways, it's a more open and ambiguous language for poetry in that, in that sense. Yeah, so um, I do talk about it in the beginning of my essay where I say that the pronouns he, she, and it in both Cantonese and Mandarin sound exactly the same when you say it. Um, in Cantonese, it's ta, ta, ta. You know, so you know, if you were just gesturing at someone and saying that pronoun, they wouldn't know the gender of the person you were referring to. Um, which is interesting in the context of now talking about obviously you know being trans and being genderqueer. Um, I've been recently grappling with this notion of non-binary um, genderqueerness and thinking about pronouns, but then also realizing that the pronouns don't translate. You know, in Chinese, it doesn't matter. That's not the that's not where you would get the argument of why don't you use the right pronoun because they're all the same. Um, so I think for me that's quite just. Curious and interesting. interesting. And it's yeah. interesting tying into what you were saying about um, all those scholarly translations that had actually straightened out 
the original oh, yeah, source totally, text. Totally, yeah. Because translating from, for example, from Chinese poet, mm -hmm. in a way, then you can you uh, a lot of translators will, in some way, kind of heterosexualize yeah. it or assume mm. yeah. the pronouns and, yeah. and and put straightness into it. I right. suppose. Mm. So that's quite. It's an interesting idea of this, mm. that when you translate, you could translate across. Completely. sexualities you can queer completely. a text you can straighten a text completely like i in reading so much verlaine translations um i think there's like there's one book which is like i think it's called like the book of boys and it's meant to be like the slightly naughty poems or something and then they use the sort of proper pronouns they'll talk you know the poems are addressed to men or, or you know can can use uh, can use that sort of language whereas everything else is really sort of um is, is either uh, is either addressed to a woman or it's either addressed to uh, someone who's who's non-gendered. I just feel so massively offensive that that is. I mean, I, why would we be surprised that that's what people would sometimes do? But um, but yeah. So I think it's incredibly important to kind of like reclaim pronouns for people who who cannot reclaim or reclaim the pronouns of their lovers. Totally. And to just be very careful when we're translating. Yeah, just translators yeah. to be yeah. very careful and think yeah. about those things, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, um, interesting. Mm. interesting. And are there any, um, either of you were talking about kind of amplifying LGBT voices from around the world mm. tonight. Are, who are the people that we should be reading? Who are, the, who, who, are there any poets that you would, what areas mm. of poetry that you, you think are exciting? Or, or is, is the problem that it's not, so little is being translated into English you almost can't think where to start? I guess, um, so it's interesting that the first thing that comes to mind is a um, Hong Kong Chinese poet called Nicholas Wong, and he writes in English only, mm. you know, and, and it was funny because I think he was, um, his book won the Lambda Literary <coughs> Award for gay poetry two years ago, mm. and this is definitely the biggest award, you know, gay or straight, that Hong Kong poetry has ever received. Um, Sarah Howe is obviously the, the other person who's ever received such an honor. And uh, he got asked about the state of Hong Kong poetry, about queer poetry. And he was like, there is a girl called Mary Jean Chan. Uh, and I think that's about it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, great. And then someone tagged me on Facebook. And I was like, thank you. Um, <laughs> but I think it just shows that it's just such a dearth of people writing about queerness in Hong Kong. Um, I think people often have a misconception that because we were somehow because we were westernized or colonized, there's a lot freer than, say, mainland China is. But really, it really isn't. Like recently, um, a bunch of children's books got confiscated from the library and got put into reserve stacks where you can access mm. them only for special research purposes mm. because they were promoting homosexuality. I mean, even mm. things like that get really attacked. Um, so mm. I think having this and thinking about reading this in Hong Kong feels very subversive. Mm. So I think it's interesting how these things travel across different contexts. And Totally. Like one of the amazing things about MPT, well, it's always been one of the amazing things. Is it's, it's not just sort of modern voices, or it's called modern poetry and translation. I mean, this issue, um, it, you've got translations of Alice Rahon, who was a French surrealist poet, and also uh, Costia's translating um, Andrea. I can't remember his last name. Andreas. Um, the what's his name? Oh, sorry, <laughs> sorry. Andreas um, Agalakis. Who who is a who's an amazing Greek poet who who died of AIDS in the very early 90s, and it's impossible to find his his work, um, and and you know part of the work of, of a magazine like MPT and and also like trying to you know queer translation is to kind of 
bring back into focus voices that have been lost because they just didn't have the opportunity to publish um, and to publish openly. Like, I mean, if you think about someone like Cavafy, like everyone knows who Cavafy is and everyone totally loves Cavafy, but Cavafy couldn't have published during his lifetime. He would have been lynched. He wrote his poems in letters to his friends and it's just incredibly lucky that people saved those letters, you know. And it's it's wonderful that people saved those letters, but who are the, the people whose letters weren't saved? Who are all the other voices that we, we didn't get the opportunity to read? But, you know, MPT is, is going a small way to readdressing that balance, which is wonderful. Are there any... We're going to have to wrap up soon, so we've got time for a couple of questions, though, for, for Mary Jean and Richard. Has anyone got any about what they read tonight? Yeah, uh -huh. Yeah, to add to that, so I think what you're sort of gesturing at is that in Chinese there are no tenses, so there's no ran, run, you know, you have to literally say yesterday I run, tomorrow I run, and, and so it, it's kind of building blocks of words, and yeah, I think through writing English poetry, sometimes when I look at Chinese, I mean, even the pronoun thing, I never realized that, you know, here you've got the he, she, they, and then in Chinese it doesn't matter or it doesn't translate, and it's just given me a new understanding, I think, of Chinese, even though my parents do accuse me of like abandoning my heritage and <laughs> things like that, you know, but I think actually it's enriched my understanding of my mother tongue, I think, yeah. And, and also just to respond to the idea of linear time, I think this is like sort of a draft version of that notion, but I think for me English initially was kind of just a very strict like, this is how you get better, you know, more grammar, more vocabulary, and then suddenly one day you're a good English speaker, but then poetry is all about creativity and play and breaking rules, and I think translation for me is a bit like that as well. It's very creative. It's about versions. It's about what you did with Verlaine, and, and I'm trying to see language through that lens now. So. There's a great um, essay in the New Poetry Review by Sophie Collins. I don't know mm. if anyone's read that yet, where she talks about this kind of model of translation as being all about traditionally about fidelity, and she said it's almost quite a kind of old heterosexual model where the translator is positioned as the kind of feminized, the, the handmaiden to the masculine, you know, thrusting source text. Mm -hmm. um, and she posits a new way of thinking about it. it might be to stop thinking about fidelity and think about intimacy instead. And that was something that mm -hmm. I, I was thinking when both of you were talking really about. That's really interesting. Yeah, I'm halfway through that essay, so I haven't got to the end. <laughs> I haven't got to the end yet. But I like that she takes issue with the idea that you know you should be feel you should feel utterly joyful when you're translating, and she takes total issue with that because she's like actually, well, happiness is that's how we're supposed to feel. That's how we're told to feel. Uh, and I like the idea that translating is is incredibly hard and and riven with pitfalls, both in the interpretation and also in the work that you do yourself. Pitfalls that you talk about so eloquently in your in your in your essay. I mean, obviously, like, because I guess in in some ways a, a a scholarly version might show more fidelity to the original than yours. Yeah. But actually, <laughs> on some levels, it 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 doesn't because mm. actually they, they they might be missing something else. They're translating out perhaps the. I think so. Yeah, totally translating out. Well, I guess the and there co is an the queerness. I think in your translations, you have 
Thank you. There's a sense that of you collaborating with, with the poet to create something right, very emotional. Thank you. I definitely um, felt when you used the word playtime, I thought that kind of hit the nail on the head because I was kind of like playing around, like swapping the idea of a soul for a grinder profile or something. Like, what's that if it's not play? And I think that's a good way of looking at it. Totally. That's translating across time as well, mm. of course, isn't it? Okay, um, I will I will wrap up now then because it's getting to half past and I'm sure people want to go on to cider suppers and, and rosé in the sunshine. Um, well, what's left of the sunshine. But thank you very, very much um, to everyone who participated tonight, to Jennifer, Mary Jean and Richard. Um, can we give them a round of applause? <laughs>